0: little girl from the deep south was with her parents visiting up in the New York, New England area. They were talking to a particular gentleman who had a very, very deep New York accent. When they finished the conversation, she looked at her mother and said, why does he talk like that? And her mother said, well, that's just the way most people hear talk, that's their accent. It's different from ours. And she said, but, but to them, they think we are the ones who talk funny. And her little girl thought about it. She said, you mean they hear funny too? Have <laughs> you ever done much traveling in different parts of the country? You, you understand that uh, there are distinctive accents in different places. In New York. Heard a guy on television this week uh, being interviewed in the aftermath of that horrible storm. And he definitely was from New York. Or maybe you hear from somebody from Boston or Chicago. But it's not just that direction. You come down south and find people down in the deep south from Atlanta or maybe New Orleans Uh, Of course, we in Texas don't have any accent. (laughs) When I uh, worked for a company one time that was headquartered in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I would go up there and they just loved to hear me talk. They thought I talked very interesting. Of course, the guys from Minnesota, you know, they don't do that, eh? Or we uh, go up to Regina to visit Kevin Vance and hear about all the things that are going on up there, eh? Of course, we, we're quick to suggest that's all in good fun. It's all just kind of kidding around and stuff. But, but underneath that, there's a little something more, maybe, even though we're not really aware of it very much. There was a study done recently about this particular phenomenon, and they published a summary of it in the, in the Wall Street Journal. A couple of observations from that study said the further from native sounding an accent is, the harder we have to work and the less trustworthy we perceive the information to be. In other words, the more different you sound than me, the more I'm challenged to find you trustworthy. And, and then a, a corollary researchers found that the heavier the accent, the more skeptical participants became, if you sound like you're not from around here, then my, my uh, credibility radar, my, my sensitivity to your accent goes up significantly, and I'm more skeptical. And my bias is not based on your character or upon your actions or even, for that matter, on your words but upon how you say them, on the accent that you have. Despite our best intentions, we all either consciously or unconsciously have little pockets of prejudice and bias. In biblical terms, we show favoritism toward those who are more like us and not so much toward those who are different from us. It's a challenging thing. And that challenge is not unique to those of us in different parts of this country or in the 21st century. If you go halfway around the world and all the way back to the first century, you find that they had some of the same challenges with that situation, with that circumstance. Hope you've got your Bibles with you. We're in the book of Acts as we're making our way through, looking at the beginnings of the church and the kingdom of God as as God grew his, the followers of Jesus. We're in chapter 6 today. Please turn to Acts chapter 6. We're going to read there in just a moment. We're looking at the unfolding of God's plan that we saw first indicated in, in back in chapter 1 of Acts in verse 8. Just before Jesus ascends back into heaven, he commissions his followers. He calls them to be his witnesses. First, right there in Jerusalem, And then in Judea, the larger area, and then into Samaria, which was a different place, and then to the ends of the earth. And we're seeing that begin to unfold by that unstoppable power of God that was at work then we're seeing that in in chapter 2 of Acts, in verse 41, we read, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then a a little bit later, in verse 47, it says, The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It wasn't just a one-shot deal, this big explosion, and then it cooled off. They continued to bring people to be followers of Jesus. In chapter 4, in verse 4, Many of those who heard about the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000 and in chapter 5 and verse 14, it says, More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. This, this growth of the body of Christ, this growth of the church, of the number of followers of Jesus, just continues to move forward. But as they grow, they're continuing to encounter various challenges and struggles as well. Remember we saw back in chapter 4 how they they began to experience persecution from the religious leaders outside the body. And then last week we looked at chapter 5 where we see it it wasn't just a problem with with something outside from persecution there was a problem within as people kind of fell into some pretense about what they were doing. There was a little corruption going on inside. Well, today in chapter 6, we're going to see uh, an example of what I believe is the greatest struggle, the greatest challenge yet to the church. Let's, let's begin reading in verse 1. The number of followers was growing, but during the same time, the Greek-speaking followers had an argument with the other Jewish followers The Greek-speaking widows were not getting their share of the food that was given out every day. The 12 apostles called the whole group of followers together and said, it's not right for us to stop our work of teaching God's Word in order to serve tables. So brothers and sisters, choose seven of your own men who are good, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. We will put them in charge of this work. Then we can continue to pray and to teach the Word of God. The whole group liked the idea, so they chose these seven men, Stephen, a man of great faith and full of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a man from Antioch who had become a Jew. Then they put these men before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God was continuing to spread. The group of followers in Jerusalem increased, and a great number of the Jewish priests believed. And obeyed. And that little story, that little section there, begins and ends talking about how the followers of Jesus were growing. I mean, in the very beginning, verse 1, it says the number of followers of Jesus was growing. And then down in verse 7, it says the group of followers in Jerusalem increased, and a great number of people believed. And not just, just the ordinary people, but Jewish priests, the people who had been such opponents to Jesus. Now, between those two statements, though, about the church growing, there was a real serious problem that they had to deal with, one that threatened the unity and the health and the vitality of of the church. And we want to look at, just for a few minutes this morning, what what that was and how they, they overcame it so that we can understand how we can overcome those kinds of things as followers of Jesus today. You see, Luke describes a a two-part problem here in Acts chapter 6. The first and most evident problem is one of division, the potential for division because of this conflict that arose between two different groups of the followers of Jesus there. One of the groups were the Hellenists or the Greek-speaking Jewish followers of Jesus. These were the people that, that probably most likely had spent some time in other areas other than right there in the Holy Land, where Greek was the, the common language, and they, they spoke that. That was their, their first language. And then there's this other group, that are the Hebraic Jews or the, the ones who spoke the the local language of Aramaic, which is kind of a Hebrew dialect. And these two people, it wasn't hard to, to tell the differences between the two. Their accent and how they spoke and the words they used made it real clear which group you were a part of. And the problem is as they were trying to take care of people, especially the widows it talks about here, some of them weren't receiving the same level of care and support and provision as the others. The Greek-speaking widows were kind of getting overlooked, kind of getting short shrift in this deal. And that was a problem. You see, widows really, really were... In need in that day and time, someone's husband would pass away. They didn't have social security. They didn't have a government welfare system. They didn't have a big retirement plan they could tap into. I mean, they were in trouble. They were desperately needing some help and support and somebody to provide for them. Normally, that would happen with the extended family. Uh, the, the, the extended family would support someone whose whose husband had passed on. Uh, If there was no extended family, the synagogue might help them. But when you have a situation where some Jewish woman, widow, has become a follower of Jesus and the rest of the family didn't, the rest of the family is probably not going to be too big on supporting them. And the Jewish synagogue is probably really not going to be big on supporting them because they've become followers of Jesus so it was it was really important that the church step up and care for these people and provide for these people in their time of need and they were doing that problem is didn't seem to be doing it very equitably it, it, there was a little bit of thing that wasn't fair in the way it was done and and that was creating some real concerns some real problems among the two groups now That kind of thing can still happen in churches. I mean, it's not uncommon for one group to feel neglected. Certainly that can happen with people of different ethnic backgrounds or different nationalities. And that just like was going on here, that's an important thing to be aware of and, and not to fall into. But it's not just limited to that. We can we can have other groups that feel kind of marginalized, kind of excluded and, and not really included as as an equal partner in this. For instance, if somebody is older, there can really be a feeling that well, the church is really all about young folks and young families and, and all of that that 's where all the focus is that 's where the, all the attention goes that 's where all it 's all about and, and just not really feel like they 're valued the way they need to be or or maybe it 's it's, uh, not uh, older people, maybe it 's single people. I mean, we, we have so such a large percentage of our, of our church family here that are married or they, they have children they, and, and, and everything just kind of works with couples. If you're a single person, it's, it's really easy to not feel like you're really included and embrace the way. Maybe it's people that aren't as affluent as most people. We, Collin County is a very affluent area, and if people don't have that, you can feel like you're really not a part. I mean, there's so many different ways this situation can occur with different people. And it's really important that we recognize that and, uh, and, and respond in a, in a healthy way. <clears throat> sometimes when uh, when things like that happen and somebody for, for whatever reason feels like they're really not included, they're really not accepted the way they, they long to be, uh, m- most often, I, I think probably what happens is they just decide they're gonna go to church somewhere else. They're gonna find another place and maybe that'll be better. Understand that. It's not a very healthy approach though for, for a couple of reasons. One, it says I've kind of got this consumer attitude, this consumer mentality toward the church. It's all about I want my needs met and I want people taking care of me and I want, you know, I mean, I understand that. That can be natural. But when when we've got a situation where we're not feeling included or accepted, it's really important that we speak up and be honest and we address that and we work through that, not just for our own sakes, but also that, to help make the church aware of that so that we can Respond in a in a healthy way, and that's what they did here. I mean, they they didn't have another church down the road to go to. There wasn't a church across town. They this was it, and so they they engaged this very very difficult situation. Now, when they did that, when they when they uh, brought it to the attention of the of the apostles, the apostles responded. But that brings up a second challenge that's going on here in the first part of Acts 6. It's not just the potential division, but there's a very real potential for distraction by the apostles. You see, the apostles, the leaders of the church had a a focus that they needed to stay focused on and that was prayer and the the ministry of the word, teaching people, bringing people to, to Jesus helping them understand God's plan for them. And it would have been real tempting, I'm sure, when this happened for the church leaders to stop and kind of put aside what they were doing and say, oh, this is really important and we really care about people and we want to deal with this and we want to respond to this in a healthy way. And so to have put aside what their primary role was so that they could effectively address the situation. And and, I mean, we can understand that. After all, Jesus was all about serving, right? Jesus was all about servant leadership. And and, I mean, wouldn't it... Wouldn't it have been great to see them do that? I mean, how would you feel if you came up here one Sunday morning and, and, and some of our elders were back there uh, fixing the coffee for everybody to have, just serving that way? Or maybe one of them was in a, a restroom and, and they were kind of tidying that up and making it presentable. And you go, wow, these are really humble guys. These are really servant kind of people. That, and that that seems real neat, real good at first glance until you realize that we can only... We can only have our focus and expend our energy in, in so many ways. And the apostles realized if, if they were to take this on themselves and personally try to be about dealing with this, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be doing what their primary role was, which was the ministry of the word. So what do they do? Well, look at verse two. The 12 apostles called the whole group of followers together and said, it's not right for us to stop our work of teaching God's Word in order to serve tables. They realized that would be a mistake, but they didn't want to ignore it. So what are they going to do? Luke describes how they responded to this problem, which I think provides a great solution for them, and it provides a wonderful model for how we can deal with things like this that arise in the church today. There's three things they did. First of all, they listened. Good leaders have to listen. It's absolutely essential. The apostles diffused this threat to their leadership by listening. They, they took the complaint seriously. They, they, they could have responded in different ways, I guess. They could have said, oh, well, you know, some people are going to be unhappy about anything. It doesn't matter what you do. People be disgruntled and they're going to find something to complain about. They're not going to be happy about this. If we did what they want, they wouldn't be happy about that. You know, they're just, and that's, that's a tempting way to respond, especially when the people that are really concerned or upset or disturbed about something, whenever they voice that concern in a less than charitable way. And that happens a lot when people are disturbed. But that's not what the what the apostles did. They didn't just say, oh well, they're just they're just griping. They're just, you know, unhappy people. Another thing they didn't do is they didn't just kind of ignore it. Just say, oh, well, it'll blow over after a while. We'll just kind of go on their way and hope it'll work itself out. They didn't do that. That's a very popular response also that we see in in difficult situations these days. They they knew they needed to listen and respond. And that's still a, a Key dimension of healthy leadership today. There's a guy who ran a little computer company. His name was Bill Gates. Here's what he said about leadership. He said, "You have to be constantly receptive to bad news, and then you have to act on it." Sometimes I think my most important job as CEO is to listen for bad news. If you don't act on it, your people will eventually stop bringing bad news to your attention, and that's the beginning of the end. The willingness to hear hard truth is vital not only for heads of big corporations but also for anyone who loves the truth. Sometimes the truth sounds like bad news, but it's just what we need. can't be afraid of bad news. You can't, you can't want to shut it out. You have to listen. You have to listen seriously and, and respond to that. And that's, that's what the apostles did. But the second thing they did, they didn't just listen and take it seriously. The second thing they did, they, they decided to delegate. They oversaw a process in which this particular ministry, this responsibility, was delegated to some other people, given to some, some men, seven men, to oversee this work. Now, that's not always an easy thing to do either just like listening when there's bad something bad going on that's not a fun or easy thing giving the responsibility to somebody else is very challenging i mean what if those guys made a mess of it even worse than it was what if what if they just didn't take care of things what what if they decided they were going to do it the other way what what if they, you know you can have all kinds of what ifs when you're when you're being challenged to delegate a responsibility to somebody else, they weren't afraid of that. They, they chose the people. They, they said, we're gonna, we're gonna choose seven people to give this to. <clears throat> and when they did, they didn't micromanage it. They handed it over. Now, they did say, we've got some guidelines. We've got some criteria for these people. The people they wanted had to, first of all, be people of good reputation, good report, be people who were well-respected by the members in the community. And then second, they were to be people who were full of the Spirit, who were very spiritual people. And third, they just had to be people who were wise. In other words, they wanted, they wanted some people who were men of character, men of spiritual maturity, and people who had just some good old practical common sense that it would be able to do this thing well. They, they weren't looking for the people that, unfortunately, we sometimes look for as leaders in the church, you know, successful businessmen or, or, or very popular political people or, 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 or people that have uh, uh, degrees or, or whatever. No, nothing wrong with those things. Those are some wonderful qualities. That's not the criteria they were looking for. They wanted some people who had proven their integrity in the grind of life and who demonstrated an ability to deal with it. So they they listened and they decided to delegate and third, they included the congregation in the process. They were team players. They teamed up with the church to make this happen. Uh, One of the most amazing things... In this passage is something that may not be overtly obvious to us at first reading, but when you look at the names of these people, what do you see? Let's look at them again. Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, McCainer, Timon, Parmenus, Nicholas. So their names. Big deal. I understand that each of these seven names were Greek names, which means, in all likelihood, these were men who were part of the group where the widows hadn't been taken as well care of as the other group. Isn't that amazing? They didn't say, okay, well, we'll we'll divide it up half and half. They said, look, Those widows, those Greek speaking widows haven't been cared for very well. Here's what we're gonna do. We're not gonna go to the old guard. We're not gonna go to the people that have been around here forever. We're gonna entrust this to people who were part of the Greek speaking group. People who most likely would have a heart for those people. And we're gonna trust them to take care of both groups. And it was a wonderful outcome. Look at verse 7. The word of God was continuing to spread. The group of followers in Jerusalem increased and a great number of the Jewish priests believed and obeyed. You see, when when people see a group that that does things like that, that cares about people and makes sure they're going to do things so that people are cared for, they say, I want to be a part of that. If they had done something different, where they were just talking a good game but not really living it, you wouldn't have seen that happening. But thanks be to God and to their spiritual maturity, they led them through that in a way that that it was even better on the other side. We want to make a difference for Christ. That means not just doing things the way we've always done them with the same old folks. It means listening it means entrusting people responsibility. And it means being a team player in all the challenges that face, face us as a church. We have a great opportunity to do that, to care for people, just like they're talking about doing here. Had one this morning already uh, giving for the benevolent fund for the, for the coming year. If you, if you didn't bring your check, you weren't able to give, you can go online or you can bring it another time. We've got another one next Sunday with Love Where You Live, where we, we, we leave the building and be the church, going out and caring for people and personally being involved in ministering to them. Wonderful opportunities to, to do what God calls us to do. And I hope that you'll take those opportunities seriously. You know, it's not all about just having the right answers or telling people things in the right way, you know, having it all packaged, smooth and slick. What's gonna make more of a difference in telling people about Jesus than everything else is when we're caring about people and living that out in our lives. And that can go either way. I wanna close, we're out of time, I wanna close with a story uh, that Eugene Maddox shares about when he was a child. He and his mother were, were alone in their family. And he said they never ate at home. They always went to the cafeterias for dinner. he said his mother might cook something once every year or two. And it was always the same thing. It was always beef stew. He said, I didn't think she knew how to cook anything else. He said in 1970, when he was 15 years old, they were invited to have dinner at the home of his mother's employer, who was also a friend. And he said they loved going there. Because... It was just so homey, and they, were, they felt so welcomed, so warm. But he said the best thing about it, it was home-cooked meal. They, they, they would sit down at the table, and after they said grace, there was this feast that was there. He said he loved going to this place. On this particular day in 1970, they were invited, and when they got there, there were two other people that had been invited as guests, two older ladies one who was slightly crippled and another who was her uh, caregiver, uh, a black lady named Miss Addie. And he said they, they'd said grace and they started to eat and he noticed Miss Addie wasn't there. And he thought, well, she just must have not be feeling well or something. When the evening was over, they were in the car heading home and he asked his mom what happened to Miss Addie. And he said what his mom told him absolutely shocked him. She said the sister of her employer was the one who had prepared the meal for them. And she had been raised with a tradition that said black people and white people don't sit out of the same table to eat dinner. And so Miss Addie had been asked to eat in another room. He said he was stunned and both he and his mother were ashamed that they had been a part of of that meal they they felt horrible about it he said 3 days later i came home from school and i got another shock his mom was cooking a meal and it wasn't beef stew she was cooking roast and potatoes and carrots and gravy and all the all the fixings and he said What's going on? He said he looked in the dining room and the table was set fancier than he had ever seen it. And his mother said, I've decided we're going to invite Miss Addie to come and have dinner with us tonight. Here's how he describes that night. That night was the most wonderful dinner I ever had with my mother. Miss Addie was a congenial guest who even brought us a little set of guest towels as a gift. No Christmas or birthday present my mother ever gave me will ever compare to that night. As she sat at that table, she was a hundred feet tall in my eyes. Only three years later, she died. But the memory of that night lives on within me, though I did not recognize it at the time. My mother had given me a living picture of grace, of God's heart and his great table. May God empower us to serve tables the way Eugene Maddox's mother did with Miss Addie, embracing everyone the same, Receiving and accepting and caring and loving and so demonstrate the spirit of Jesus Christ. And that unstoppable power that was working then is still going to work through us today in his kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so